Hey everyone, welcome to today's show of This is Creative AI. Today we have Pontus Wernerstall. Hey Pontus, nice to have you. Hi Kern, nice to be here. <laughs> awesome. So I'm going to introduce Pontus to our audience. Pontus is an award-winning service designer and human-computer interaction researcher with 20 years of experience in user design, service design, and human-centered AI. He is the author of 40-plus scientific papers, and the book, Designing AI-Powered Services, available in Swedish and English. Pontus is passionate about teaching and an experienced public speaker and writes about design, value, and AI. Since June 2023, Pontus is spearheading the AI and design track at Ambition Empower. So once again, welcome to the show, Pontus. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. So Pontus... You take your fitness quite seriously, uh, what were the videos of your commitment to taekwondo, body flow, and hiking amongst others. At a certain point in your training, you know, you would experience a flow state where learning and expression can happen simultaneously. But you really have to push your body and mind to get to that point. In a world where GPT models are rapidly doing all the heavy lifting for us, OpenAI has said that, you know, UI UX designer jobs are at great risk, will the designers coming into the market be less likely to experience those flow states in design? Simply because they just wouldn't have to think that hard themselves. They'd be heavily dependent on AI tools to do the thinking for them. What are your thoughts? So there's a lot of things to unpack here. So uh, let's start with the concept of flow and why it might be desirable. And you're right, flow can occur even if you are uh, physically exercising or if you are doing intellectual work and writing and so on. And Csikszentmihalyi, the original author of the concept, I believe was already in the 70s or something. We have to realize that flow is a personal experience and perhaps it is related to productivity or efficiency, but the flow state is not necessarily always resulting in good productivity at work. So we just have to make sure that it's not a goal in itself for sort of productivity work to become into a flow state. Now, it can be very beneficial, but a flow state is very personal and to me, at least, it's very human. So to me, there is a, you know, a hard wall between AI and flow, and it could affect perhaps, but it's not necessarily something that is an either-or situation. Granted, flow is a positive thing most of the time, but you mentioned that AI will do all of the heavy lifting, and I'm not sure I agree with that. I think AI can be a very good extra tool for almost any kind of human activity, but I don't think we're in a position where designers will be automated away from everything that has to do with design. However, some aspects of design work could be greatly affected by well, both predictive AI and generative AI and possibly other kinds of AI as well. But that's not the same as AI is doing all the heavy lifting for us. It could do heavy lifting in terms of automatic cropping of images or applying a consistent filter to uh, images that we use or even provide the outline of presentations or stuff like that. But then you as a designer still need to fill it with creativity and new kinds of thoughts and, and so on. I don't think it's an either or situation when it comes to AI taking our 
activities. And I also, I haven't read OpenAI's report that claimed that UX UI designers are at great risk, but I would say that as with most jobs and in relation to technology, I think specific tasks within a job can always be in flux, but complete jobs, especially in the cognitive realm, I think we should be a little cautious when claiming that complete jobs will disappear and so on. I, I think that will change, but I, I'm not so sure. I have to read the report in more detail, but it seems to me like that is a fairly um, high-level statement that we might turn some stones on, so to speak. So it's it's still early days and, and a lot to, to unpack. Speaking of unpacking, you've just written a book titled Designing AI-Powered Systems, which just came out this year. Would be great if you gave us maybe three takeaways. And if there's more, obviously people have to buy the book. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the book is actually called "Designing AI-Powered Services and Not Systems." Bad, and that's, not systems. that's really it's a keyword actually because systems power the service. I'm more focusing on the service part, the service experience, the human AI interaction experience, and so on. The underlying technology can be rendered in different ways, but the user experience and the service experience is really important. And that's where I can contribute. So some takeaways, one is that I've sliced AI capabilities into three different sort of main buckets, if you will. And I think those buckets are useful for designers to think about what kind of experiences I can give to my users. So those would be uh, prediction, adaptivity, and agency. Prediction is basically what you would consider most AI to do today, predict things given previously unseen data, right? Adaptivity is when you adapt or personalize those predictions to specific users or unique contexts or so on, using context models or user models. Whereas agency is where you put those personalized prediction into a service that can act on your behalf, take its own initiative. And this is highly related to Chris Nussel's use of agentive services. So it's very compatible with that. Other takeaway could be, I have like five challenges for designers. One is you need as a designer to learn more about AI. That's the knowledge challenge. And then we have the innovation challenge. It's not enough to learn about it, but you need to be able to contextualize it and put it into your design work and think new thoughts and not just rely on old tried patterns like personalized recommendations of items in an e-commerce, for example. That's a standard pattern, and sure, you can use that, but as a creative designer, you need to apply AI technology in ways that we haven't thought of before, perhaps. So innovation perspective, and that leads to new methodologies for prototyping AI-powered experiences. Because traditionally, we as designers are good at uh, prototyping static digital services that behave in a consistent manner when you ship it, and then it behaves that way throughout the months or years it's been used. But an AI-powered service has the ability to adapt. So when we release an AI-powered service, it should be good on day one, but it should be even better on day 30, let's say. And you need to be able to prototype that progression before you launch the service. And you need to evaluate the user experience in a highly adaptive service that change too, right? And also another challenge is you as a designer is typically the spider in the net, so to speak, in a team. We have been through decades of the discussion of how designers should be able to communicate with front-end and back-end developers, learning enough programming 
in order to make a, an informed discussion with your counterparts in the team. The same goes now for data science and machine learning. You also need to be able to talk about data-specific aspects, and you need to talk to your data science specialist in the team about false positives and false negatives, and how will that affect the user experience. In some domains, it's all right. I mean, if I get a false positive recommendation in on Netflix or Spotify, not the end of the world. It might even be good, right? If we're in a self-driving situation and a false positive would mean maybe even the death of a pedestrian, well, then you need to consider that pretty hard, right? So as a designer, you need to be aware of those nuances in the data and algorithms. And another takeaway is, of course, that the book consists of more than 50 concrete design guidelines, and those could be useful, I guess. Well, that's, that's fantastic, Pontus. I mean, it's, it's really valuable. I had another question. Students who study design the traditional way are coming out into this world of generative AI and, you know, also the challenging job market. My question there was, how should they think of themselves in this world of AI and design? And you already preemptively answered a lot of those questions. Any other recommendations you might have about podcasts, books, or videos, etc., that they should maybe check and track? So many different resources and new resources come up every day. So it's really hard to be current with, with everything that happens. But I would say that if you want to learn the basics of AI and machine learning from a technical perspective, there are some good tried and true resources like Andrew Ng, for example. He has released a course called AI for Everyone on Coursera. I think that's a really good starting point if you want to learn more about the technical details. However, I should say that as a designer, you actually don't need as much depth in the technicalities as you might think. You, what you need is a solid understanding on how adaptive services affect the user experience. And you can learn so much by using your own fields prototyping methods, design sprints and establishing a scenario and role-playing uh, your way through an AI-powered service mock-up without a single line of code being written. You can learn so much about the user experience there. There is a prototyping method called uh, Wizard of Oz, referring back to the novel where the whole world was created by this wizard who was hidden behind a curtain. And that's the same thing here. You as a human can role play the AI functionality and hide that from the user and have them immerse themselves in this AI powered world, if you will. And then at the end, you debrief them, of course, and uh, you talk about the experience and so on. So you can learn a lot as a designer without having the know how to program an AI model. I think that's really important because you can get the technical help, but if you can't put the requirements on the service experience, well, then you are all of a sudden implicitly handing the service experience to a programmer or a data scientist, which could be good, but it's a risk, right? Because they are focused on the technical aspects and they're not necessarily skilled in the human experience design. And that's what you as a designer are. So I applaud everyone who wants to learn more about the technicalities about AI, but I would also say, don't forget to adapt your existing design repositories and tools and methods to AI as a new design material. You, you, you got this anyway, right? The last thing that you said, AI being uh, a design material, and, and in that context, you also of data as this new material that sure. designers are now working with. But data also presently, you know, it sits in this little bit of a black box, right? I mean, a lot of these large language models, we're not entirely sure, you know, what is the data that they've been trained on because we don't, we're not yet at that point where 
large companies or any kind of company has to put a it's in a data ingredient label. They don't have to put that. They don't have to transparently sort of share that. But we're at this point where we're already in this generative AI moment and there's, there's a lot of happening in the space and designers coming in young or maybe a couple of years of experience have to come into this environment and work with this data. How should they think of designing with data that, you know, they're not entirely sure where the data has come from? How should they potentially be adaptable to that? If it results in something that they had not foreseen, any thoughts around that? Oh, yeah. Oh, th this is, I think this is our, I don't know if it's the, the question of the decade, but close to it. The data problem is on so many levels. I mean, you're right. The black box problem is one thing. Even if a company, let's say OpenAI, declares all the resources they have trained DPT on, how does that help me? really in the details, right? I know that it's been trained on all of Wikipedia, most of internet before 2021 or whatever it is, and most digitized books. But what does that mean for my service? Another layer of data problem is the fact that people are now rushing to OpenAI's particular DPT implementation. I'm coming from a background where I work with Swedish public sector. So Sweden is a small country and Public sector is regulated in what they can do and cannot do with foreign companies and, and all that. So to me, rushing to, for example, OpenAI's or even Google's or Microsoft's data repository and building your service on top of that, that is not non-problematic, right? It's putting all the eggs in a, an American commercial basket. And it could be good, but it could also be pretty bad for a small nation's public sector. So... We're talking more and more about AI and data layers being a part of the national infrastructure of countries. And in Sweden, we have an initiative called GPT Sweet, which is a Swedish GPT model that is open, is not as good yet as OpenAI's model because they have put more resources into it. But I would imagine that if you build public service sector for a nation, you would consider where is this data and what will happen if this foreign company is changing the premises for it and, and so on. So, I mean, it's a whole political aspect of the data layer as well. Yeah, you, you're touching upon a, on a question that is really tricky. In the EU, we have the EU AI Act that will trickle down to all the individual member countries during the next uh, coming years. And that will affect our services. And it will also affect beyond EU, because if all of EU is following this a AI Act, it will, of course, have implications on how we build services and interact with other nations outside of EU as well. <laughs> That's a tough question. <laughs> no right answer, but then maybe a few new ways or threads that you can think of the problem. And actually, just to maybe build on one thing that you said just now, the EU has actually been at the forefront of how we think of data and data privacy, right? I mean, with the GDPR and now with the AI Act that, that just sort of came out. For yep. you personally, thinking of AI and design, do you have any expectations of it uh, or how you see it panning out? Having read through some of the drafts, I think the ideas behind the AI Act are, are sound. And then it's a matter of implementation. It's really hard to tell how it's going to play out. I think sometimes you need to look at the individual user experience, but you also need to look at the whole. And those can be quite different, actually, because GDPR, for most of us, is just cookie consent on websites. <laughs> but GDPR is a lot more than that, obviously. Obviously. So it remains to be seen how it plays out. I want to go back in time. Before we go forward, 
I actually want to go back in time to 2018 when you released the Augmented Services Canvas. It's an article that's on Pontus's Medium blog. And a shout out to Katya Forbes, who actually yep. mentioned the Augmented Services Canvas in a different podcast episode. That's where I got to know about Pontus. And now we started having this conversation. So thanks for that, Katya, for connecting us. But to speak a little bit about the Augmented Services Canvas itself, similar in some ways like the Business Design Canvas or other sort of design frameworks, but what is different about it, Pontus, if yeah. you could talk to us about it, maybe an example or two in using the Canvas. I'm happy that you mentioned that it, it was actually in 2018. A lot of things have happened since. I mean, uh, the pandemic and the generative AI revolution and all that. So 2018 is ages ago in this world, right? <laughs> But what I found in 2018 was that we started to uh, scratch the surface on how would service experiences or user experiences be affected by AI tools. And remember, this was before DALI and MidJourney and, and ChatGPT and so on. So we had basic predicting, uh, predictive maintenance, for example, was big. Self-driving cars, we talked a lot about that. So what I did was, and I actually presented this at Interaction 19 in Seattle, I believe. Just like Business Model Canvas, there are two main advantages we're using these Canvas tools. One is the actual physical layout of the Canvas. You can see in one view or in one tool, you can see boxes or areas of interest and how they possibly relate to each other. So the augmented service in Canvas, it has all those boxes, right, that you expect from a Canvas. But the other thing that is really important is that you typically have a set of questions or prompts, if you will, for each of these areas. And I think those two things is what makes a canvas good. Good questions that allow you to generate and trigger, you know, going work forward, but also laying them out physically on a canvas to see how they relate. Now, the augmented services platform canvas is different from a business model canvas, for example, because it talks about the user experience and it talks about specifically how algorithms will affect both end users but also how they can affect the front stage workers internally at the company. So if you automate certain workflows, that will affect the service delivery capability of the company or service provider. And you can also use AI to create new, unique, personalized user experiences. And those could also be mapped out in this canvas. And hopefully you can see how they all belong together. So we have a data layer box and we have a network layer box and we have, you know, at the foundation of the canvas, it's shaped like a house, right? So the foundation of the house consists of how data ready are you? How forward looking is your culture? How is the innovation handled and so on? So you can do the groundwork, so to speak, with your company readiness. And then the bulk of the house, so to speak, consists of the service. And then the roof consists of ethical considerations, the high level impact of your company in relation to the service that you build and the problem and consequences that will occur if you do or if you don't implement this service. So that's roughly how it's supposed to work. And we've used this in several workshops, both at the university, but I've also used it in uh, industrial projects. Sometimes we don't go through all the questions. Sometimes we skip the ground layer because we already know about the company and, and so on. So you, it's flexible and you can use it, but at least the questions might be good prompts for you if you are building and designing an AI-powered service. I know that you said that this came out in 2018, pre-DALI, pre-Majourney, ChatGPT, etc. Yeah. But the essential questions that it asks of you to consider, these might be still very valuable for maybe 
a design studio who's now having to work with, you know, ChatGPT or DALI or any of these tools yeah, or even yeah. like corporate design teams, I would imagine. For sure. And, and remember when you asked me about the book and I said prediction was one of the main capabilities. Let's, even if we call it generative AI, ChatGPT, let's not forget that it's only prediction, right? G a GPT service is, or large language model, is basically autocomplete on steroids, right? It, it is a predictive functionality. So in my work, one of my missions is to take down the hype a little bit. It's still just a prediction machine. I get a sense of awe as well when I interact with ChatGPT. But at the end of the day, it's just a generative prediction machine. <laughs> of course, everything we've learned about AI, everything we know about user experience, everything we know about design, that still holds. I just want to highlight that, that it's not as big of a revolution that some people on LinkedIn in particular seem to think. Valuable points from someone who spent a lot of time in the space from 2018, if I were to now invite you to looking into maybe 2024, huh. you know, we're in 2023, we're in the middle of the year, there's already a lot that has happened already. If you were to put on your hat of AI design oracle and look ahead, I would put you on the spot to say, okay, what's going to happen in the next five years? Because a lot has changed in the last three months or four months. Yeah. But if I were to push you to just say, okay, Pontus, what would you say are, you know, some of the things that could change or some of the challenges we might face with mm -hmm. this as the design community, any Kodak moments, you know, where we're really not as relevant anymore? What do you see as the pluses and minuses that could come up in the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah, like you say, I want to reinforce that. Since November, we have been uh, reminded that it's really hard to predict when something new will come and how it will affect. And by November, I mean the release of ChatGPT, of course, right? There has been a lot of talk about a new profession like a prompt engineer. I don't believe in that. I think it's useful to understand and be a little aware of how good prompting could help you. Sure. But my thought is that the power of whatever we see here in, in ChatGPT or MidJourney and so on, that power will be integrated into specific services. And I think Adobe Firefly is one example of that. Uh, Adobe Firefly is like the new kind of Photoshop where, you, where they have ingrained some of the AI power generative aspects, but it is not text prompting. It has been rendered as specific controls. You can you have sliders, you have buttons, you have checkboxes in the user interface. So it's more like you are boosting specific applications. And we've seen this in architecture for a long time, actually. There is one company called Spacemaker.ai, for example. The user interface help architects to generate new neighborhood plans and blueprints and so on. So I think the raw text prompting that we talk about so much now and that people are using in ChatGPT and in MidJourney I think that will still be a niche thing, just like scripting the command prompt in old DOS or the shell for Linux and Mac. Not everyone does that. Most people rely on the controls and the UI components that professional designers build around this. So I think we're in this initial stage right now where everyone is focused on the text prompts, but I think those will disappear in into user interface components and someone needs to design those. And those are the UI designers and UX designers that will need to understand this material. So that's one thing. Another thing is that prediction and generative AI 
they will soon get company with other kinds of AI, causal AI, for example, uh, distributed, maybe even embodied AI. And this has to do with tipping points. We have seen a big flow of new generative services, right? And just by that merit, other kinds of AI will get a boost. So now people can use large language models in other AI work, right? And that, I think, will mean that distributed AI, causal AI, even uh, the classical symbolic AI will get a renaissance. Who knows, right? Because we need that in order to make sub-symbolic or, or connectionist AI explainable. We need some sort of symbol-based AI in order to make sense of that. So I, I foresee a vast variety of new AI technologies as well. So don't, my, I guess my takeaway from this long rambling is that don't aim for a job as a prompt engineer. I think that will be fairly short-lived. And I think as a designer, you could make a big difference in building tools that sort of harness the power of prediction, generative AI, and other kinds of AI in the future. Yeah, inherently, because in the, in the service design context, we are the people who understand the different stakeholders and that you're the oracle, right? You're the one who's sort of making sense of this amorphous thing in the air and then helping package it into something that everyone can understand. It's just that now the tools are slightly different and we are yeah. also at this time where the tools themselves are evolving rapidly. So this is just one more challenge that we're sort of going through. And through it yeah. are uh, books, tools and resources that become available, which will help you through the transition. I, I just want to, to uh, latch on to what you say about service design and understanding people because I've seen and it's pretty disheartening, actually. I, I see some, you know, people are advocating that, well, now you can use ChatGPT as instead of user research, right? You just put in your questions and you get res the responses. And I'm like, no, please don't. <laughs> because that's only trained on historical material. You won't get the deep insight that we've been struggling to get the field to accept ethnographic studies and, and so on. However, you could use ChatGPT to trim your interview guide, make a few test runs, right? And see if these questions seem to generate a lot of responses, but don't take those responses as user research. Your competence in understanding work context, user experiences, emotions, how people think, that is still as valid, if not more now, actually. We have to explore and investigate how people think and react and feel in AI-powered contexts. So that requires even more classical qualitative user research. So that again is is a grumpy old Pontus saying, <laughs> don't use AI for everything. <laughs> I completely agree. I think there's an interesting, exciting, bright future ahead for all of us. And hopefully through these conversations, we've shed some light on it. Yeah. Thank you so much for the conversation today, Pontus. I really enjoyed it and hopefully we will speak again soon. Thank you, Carl. Nice to be here. Contact Pontus at wordinstall.com. <laughs>